Much of this service is going to center around the fear of the Lord. And for many years, I've, I've heard Christians talk about the fear of God. But usually when I've heard it, it goes something like this. It, I hope it's familiar to you too. The fear of the Lord isn't, isn't really a fear. It's more like a healthy respect. It's like people gathered beside a campfire. You're not afraid of the campfire because you know that it's safe. You do, however, show it a healthy respect because you know the danger that occurs if you don't properly respect fire's destructive potential. Same with God. We aren't afraid of Him, but we know Him. We know His power, and we show Him a healthy respect, and that is what we call the fear of the Lord. Probably sounds pretty similar to much of what you've heard. And it, at first glance, it sounds good. In fact, during our communion time, I said something similar. I said, we continue to fear God not because we fear incurring punishment, but because we have seen what He has done. We acknowledge His justice, His holiness, His power, and we give Him the profound respect and right and holy fear that He is due. But something that I think we miss if we stick to the kind of usual understanding surrounding the fear of the Lord, particularly that awful campfire example, is that we do not worship a safe God. Much of modern evangelicalism has made God gentle and safe and soft. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, holding lambs and calling the children to himself. Loving and caring and all of those things are good. All of those things are facets of the care and concern and the love that we have seen from our God. But not too often do we hear about our Jesus wielding whips in the temple or the verbal evisceration he lays on the Pharisees when they have their hypocritical take on religion. Our world likes to think that the scary, dangerous God of the Old Testament, he's back then. And the New Testament, this new covenant that we celebrate as we gather around the Lord's table is that God isn't big and scary anymore. Now he's gentle and loving and kind. But as I said earlier, our God is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. The same God for all eternity. And that includes throughout all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And everything that we read in Scripture is all the same God and that it's all still there. Another example, I've always loved aquariums. There's something incredible about getting to be close to these animals that are usually so far removed from our realm of experience. And the fan favorite is always when you get to see some giant shark swim past you in an aquarium. It's fascinating. These beasts have so much intense and honestly frightening energy surrounding them. 
And if one of them rounds on you up against the glass, I dare anyone to say that their heart doesn't all of a sudden jump out of their chest just a little bit. Whether it's the shark in the aquarium or the fire in the fire pit, we put calm faces because these things are contained, confined to a space where we feel like they are safe. But when a shark bumps against the glass or the fire hits a knot in your firewood and sends embers everywhere, all of a sudden we're reminded of the fact that it's more than just a healthy respect. There is a visceral fear that sticks in the back of our head that is there for our own self-preservation. We move like lightning when an ember lands on our leg or even on our camp chair. It's embedded in our hearts to have a healthy fear of these things and things that we have a tentative control on at best. But even that can't begin to encompass our experience with God because He, by definition, cannot be contained. God cannot be put in the fire pit or the aquarium. The fear of the Lord is not like the aquarium or the fire pit. It is like standing in the middle of a forest fire or out in the middle of the open ocean surrounded by these sharks and there is nothing standing between you and them. Whatever example sticks best with you, our God is not safe. Our God has chosen to keep his people safe. The same God that we read throughout the Old Testament who erased cities and civilizations, the same God whose justice and holiness demands perfection, he is still the same God that we serve today. Take Moses standing on the mountaintop. God covered him to let him just see a fleeting glimpse of his glory because it is not safe for us as mortal, sinful people to be in his presence, not without some manner of protection. Let us remind ourselves this morning what it means to live with a proper fear of the Lord. And the cost incurred if we forget whom it is that we serve. Ask if you would turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. And we will read again verse 3, but our focus will be on verses 4 and following. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up, and the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a, a thought and that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, 
that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows. One of the things I saw right away is that Jonah obviously had some manner of respect for the Lord. The person who has no respect, no care for what God has to say, if God were to tell them, go do this, they would just shrug, yeah, whatever. I don't believe in you anyways. But Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah doesn't just ignore God's call. He refuses God's call and then runs in the opposite direction. He flees because he knows that God was not to be trifled with, but he disobeyed him anyways. And that leads me to believe that he did not understand the gravity of his disobedience and, more importantly, the greatness of the one whom he was disobeying. In a moment of nerdiness on the side of looking at the structure of this passage, I've always been fascinated with what our scripture has this morning. It's called a chiasm. It's a literary device where if you start at the beginning and at the end of the passage, and if you follow the thoughts through, they match each other, eventually coming to an intersection. It's named after the 22nd letter of the Greek alphabet, which looks like what we call an X. And that arrangement is important because as you follow it through, it narrows down and narrows down to a crossroads. And at the center of that X, just like the old pirate tales, X marks the spot. There at the center of the chiasm, they match up and they point to what it is that this passage is trying to get at. And we all know that when we're looking at Scripture, we're not looking for a good moral lesson. We're not looking for, well, what does this have for me today? It is an intentional look at God's Word saying, what does this say? 
Not what do I want to say. Not what does, what feels good to me. What is this trying to say? And this is one of the elements that helps us just looking at the way that the passage is laid out. And each one of the parts of this chiasm, there's a matching. So if you look at verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, they match up with verses 15 and 16. And then going from verse 5 and verse 6, they match up with 13 and 14. And it gradually narrows down until we get to the core of the passage in verses 9 and 10. So we're going to follow that chiasm through. And the first pair, like I said, is verses 4 in the beginning of verse 5 with verses 15 and 16. Verses 4 and 5 say, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up, and the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Verse 15, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. One of the things that often is kind of a signpost for this chiastic structure is you'll see repeated words as they go through. And you'll notice that the Lord hurls this storm upon the sea, just as Jonah is hurled into the sea. And when you get thinking about it, if you know much about the Hebrew people, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that you don't hear of the great Hebrew sea voyages very often. Because there was no great Hebrew sea voyages because Hebrews did not do sea voyages. They did not like the water. The water was a scary and dangerous place, and they would go only as far as necessary. Their fishermen would go out, and then they would come home. There was no months and weeks at sea. The oceans were a dark and foreboding and tumultuous place, and that is part of the reason why when Jesus comes and calms the storm in Matthew 8, the disciples were so awestruck. You are a people that does not do water, does not do ocean, and you have to travel across this this sea, and you're caught in a storm, and then all of a sudden Jesus says, peace, be still, and it falls flat, and they look at him and go, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And yet, it was to this foreboding, not well-liked ocean that Jonah flees to escape the Lord. And what happens? The Lord hurls a storm upon the sea that has even seasoned mariners crying out to God. This was not a Hebrew ship of people who didn't like the ocean running this boat. I am not a seagoing person. I have not spent a whole lot of time on the ocean, and when I do, it turns me rather green. But when you spend time on the water with a seasoned sailor, there is very little that will get under their skin because they have seen the ocean do all sorts of crazy things and they go with it. But these mariners, when this storm descended upon them, this wasn't just your normal average squall that came through. This had even these seasoned sailors 
crying out to whatever God, any God, every God, anybody who's on the ship, call out to whatever your God is. Please ask them to save us. This was not your normal storm. The forces of nature have always been a source of fascination and kind of a religious hardline for mankind. Every society throughout history has had some manner of spiritual explanation for the world around us, and of particular importance were natural disasters. Storms, volcanoes, earthquakes, whatever it might be, there was some sort of spiritual explanation for how this is happening. Something in mankind understands that these awesome forces could only be the work of someone of infinite power. And in the face of these disasters, either the coming of one or the salvation from one, the immediate response has always been to call out to God because we realize that us small mankind, there is nothing we can do in the face of these disasters. We just have to beg God to save us. And the mariners here do just that. They call out to their gods, and then straight after calling out to their gods and having whoever else they could call out to their gods when it doesn't seem to work, they move to step two, which is to attempt to rescue themselves. That's kind of our second pair of verses. The sailors hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Then in verse 13 and 14, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. If we can agree that in the face of these insurmountable odds, there's often a reflex to call out to God in the face of this hardship, then our second step is almost always to effect self-rescue. Very rarely does God respond exactly the way we expect him to. God, please save us from X. And very rarely does it go exactly the way we'd planned. And God doesn't immediately snap our troubles away, and our response is fine. I will do it myself. I will get myself out of this situation. So these sailors try to effect self-rescue. They chuck all of their cargo into the ocean, and they row as hard as they can. And they were just doing their jobs. They were trying to deliver their cargo and their passengers safely. But no matter how hard they tried, it was not working. And these sailors do perhaps what we need to do sometimes where we are trying to butt our head against the wall for the umpteenth time in a row, and it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. These sailors start asking questions and go, what isn't working here? Why is it that nothing we do, we seem to be able to get out of this situation? Verses 7 and 12 have the target, the bullseye, falling directly on Jonah. 
they cast lots, and the lots identify Jonah as the culprit in this situation. And they even ask Jonah, be like, what can we do to, to get out of this? And he says, throw me into the sea. It's because of me this tempest has come upon you. I always found it interesting that Jonah never admits his role in this whole situation until the lots single him out. Jonah is still running away from his responsibilities, even his responsibilities to the fellow men on the ship. But he is found out. And it is a message for another day, but this is also a great passage for God's sovereignty, even over what we would call luck. They cast these lots, they throw these lots, and yet still, by chance, Jonah is singled out. God is so sovereign over all of these things, and I will leave that for another day. Jonah is singled out. It all comes on his account. The sailors ask him all of these questions, and all of these questions lead us to the core of our passage this morning in verses 9 and 10. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. One of the things besides the structure of the passage that shows that this is the central point is the fact that after verses 9 and 10 here, the language changes. Prior to verses 9 and 10, it's, Call out to your gods. Whatever god it is, call out to them. Maybe they'll, the sailors called out to their gods. Jonah, you go ahead and call out to yours. Whoever it is, maybe one of them will think of us. But from this passage onwards, verses 9 and 10 onwards, all of a sudden it's no, no longer any lowercase g gods. From now on, everything, the word for God, the word for Lord that's in there is Yahweh. It is the personal name of God, and here it switches. It's interesting, Jonah claims with a very prophet-like tone, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I hope the irony is not lost on you that Jonah is claiming with this big prophetic voice, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, as he's on a boat that's sinking because he's running from the Lord and not doing what he's told. His words claim that he fears Yahweh, but his actions are claiming the exact opposite. And it is not lost on the sailors either. The sailors look at him and ask, are you crazy? What have you done? You have doomed us all. Now what can we do? The sailors' attitudes are the exact opposite of Jonah's. They even start talking to this wayward prophet, be like, okay, you worship the God that created everything, the God of the seas and the dry land. What can we do? How can we be saved? I think for those of us who have trusted in Christ, our conversion experiences can sometimes be similar. Maybe we were familiar with the God of the Bible, maybe not. Maybe these sailors were, maybe they weren't. They likely had heard of this God of the Hebrew people because... Joppa was not horribly far from Israel. Maybe they heard, maybe they hadn't, but at some point, 
everything crystallize. And at some point, for each of us, everything crystallizes, and God grants us clarity of sight, where all of a sudden we have ears to hear and eyes to see, and we shake our head and go, how did I miss this for so long? How did I miss that God is doing this? And all of a sudden, things switch from the lowercase g, God's, whatever God, any God, to uppercase g, God, Yahweh, the God of Scriptures. And at that moment, the fear of the Lord begins taking root in our hearts and our lives. And why? Because all of the sudden, we were allowed a glimpse of who God is. We saw for the first time with any clarity, this is God. None of us become Christians knowing the ins and outs of the faith. I read from the Creed of Chalcedon earlier today, and none of us immediately upon coming to faith just go, yeah, that makes sense. I I understood every part of that. All of that is just crystal clear to me, and I knew that from the moment I was converted. We don't know the ins and outs of everything. But by God's grace, just like the sailors, we know enough to see that he is the one true God, and he is rightly to be feared. And then we begin growing in our knowledge of the faith. The juxtaposition between Jonah's proclamation of faith and lack of action and the sailors' immediate about faith and reverence for God is striking. Our passage this morning ends with Jonah being hurled into the sea and the sailors doing what? They feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. I mentioned in my last message on Jonah that the book of Jonah was unique in the prophetic books because it was more about the prophet than about the prophet's message. Even more unique is that the prophet is often the faithless one in this story. The sailors and even the Ninevites display real faith, display a real fear of the Lord, taking him at his word and acting upon his commands. Jonah, on the other hand, is perpetually on the opposite end of the spectrum, having to be outright forced into making the righteous decision. He runs from God and then gets swallowed by a fish and says, okay, God, I'll do what you've called me to do. And then when he gets spat out, he goes and does it, and then he's mad that God does what he does. But I'll leave that for future days too. But coming out of our passage this morning, I want you to hear this. The fear of the Lord should pervade the lives of his people. If you claim to be a believer, if you claim to have followed Jesus Christ, then the fear of the Lord should pervade your life and it should motivate the way that we act. The way that the fear of the Lord affects our heart is defining of our standing before God. If we fear the Lord, it will change the way we act. And that's part of what a lot of people don't, don't understand when we look at the Christian faith. People go, well, it's works-based. You do the right thing, so God will love you more, and you kind of basically earn your way into heaven. We are told in Scripture that faith without works is dead. So, well, it's, it's works-based. No, it's if you fear the Lord, then that will affect the way you live. It's a necessary connection. You cannot have 
oh yeah, I believe in God, but nothing of your life displays any kind of real change or growth or any of that. James 2, 18 and 19 says, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Make no mistake, even the demons fear the Lord. But the fear of the Lord held by God's people is different. It's the kind of fear that sees the Lord for what he truly is. Holy, righteous, just, good, perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, and then falls before him in worship. The demons and much of our world sees a piece of who God is, and they hate him for it. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, they just run from it. I refuse to even acknowledge it. Whereas our fear of the Lord we run to him, desperate to know the one who has revealed himself to us. And the difference between those responses depends entirely on God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person, that is the person who does not know God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. God has to open our eyes. God has to give us that moment of clarity to see him truly. To see him as he is. As I said earlier, our God is not safe, at least not in the way that we often mean the word safe. When we say the word safe, we're saying the baby-proofed house where there is no sharp corner, there is no cord, there is no precariously balanced anything, there is no chance that a child could hurt themselves in here ever because there's nothing dangerous, no sharp corners. Our God is not safe in that sense. He is powerful and he is dangerous beyond measure, but he has called us as one of his own. He is no less dangerous because we are his, but he has promised to protect us. He still holds the literal breath in our lungs in his hands. But he has promised to care for his people. And so we fear him with a righteous and a holy fear, not the kind of fear that would run if we could, not the fear that simply says, well, that would be a bad guy to make our enemy, so I guess we'll fall in line. A fear that says, I want to be on his side. A fear that acknowledges the Lord and his greatness his power and his majesty and bows before him, ready to follow him wherever he goes and do whatever he commands. I think of some of the great leaders throughout history, particularly these military leaders. They are dangerous men beyond fathoming, and yet the people who followed them would have followed them to any fate. And for the best of these leaders, it is not because his men were afraid of him, afraid of the consequences that they would incur, it is because they have seen who it is that they were following, they believed in him and trusted him totally. Do you fear your God like that? Do you know that your God is incredibly powerful and by all respects dangerous beyond reasoning, 
and yet the only reason you aren't in danger is because he has called you one of his own, and the power and the majesty and the righteousness that makes him so dangerous is also the reason why he is able to keep you safe, why he is able to pick you out of the world and say, you are mine and nothing will tear you from my hand ever. Do you fear God like that? Would you follow him anywhere? Would you do what he has called you to do in the scriptures? I think of these sailors. Does the fear of the Lord drive you to your knees, bringing sacrifices and vows, willing to lay down absolutely anything and everything you have, and willing to do absolutely anything and everything you can for our God? And I know this is not language that often we're used to. We are used to the peaceful, wooing, loving, gracious language. And there is a place for that. Our God is also those things. Our God is big enough to encompass both sides of that spectrum. But sometimes we need to be reminded that we have every reason to have an actual holy fear of the Lord. And sometimes fearing him is exactly what we need to do. Fearing him can be what keeps us on the straight and narrow. It is not idly that our Savior said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I love my Lord, and I would do anything for him. And I will spend my life telling everyone I can about who he is. I fear the Lord. I'm no longer under the judgment that my actions would deserve, for I have placed my faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. I don't fear the Lord because I fear the upcoming judgment. Even as we gathered at the Lord's table this morning, I am keenly aware of the judgment that I have been saved from that all of his people have been saved from. So we are aware of this judgment, but it is a judgment from a wrath and God who we love and who has saved us from. So I challenge you to cultivate in your heart a right fear of the Lord. Know him well enough to know that he is the one true God and rightly to be feared. What was the moment where the sailors all of a sudden knew to fear God? It was the moment when Jonah, even in his hypocritical state, said, this is the God that I'm running from. When the sailors learned who God was, they learned to fear him. And if you want to cultivate in your heart a right and proper fear of the Lord, you must know him. You must spend time in the word and come to know who he is and what he has done, what he is capable of, and what he is still doing. And that will inspire in your heart a fear of him that is good and right and holy and that will motivate you. You will know that he is the one true God and he is rightly to be feared.
Samuel said, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you follow your God, it will be well. I, as I was wrapping up my preparation for the service this morning, I was taking my dog outside for an evening walk, and I remembered a quote from a childhood book, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And meeting Aslan, the lion, Lewis's God character, this whole book is written as an allegory for the Christian faith. This young girl, Susan, says to her guide, Aslan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Our God may not be safe. The God that we see throughout Scripture is a God that anyone who stands against him should rightly fear. And even those who stand with him should have a right and holy fear of. But we know that he is good. And we know that he is the king. And ask that the music team come forward to lead us in a closing song. No closing song today? Okay. No worship team tonight. But uh, um, I ask that you join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together this morning. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are the king. We thank you that you are so great and awesome and wonderful and powerful that we cannot even begin to define you as just safe. That you are so far beyond our ability to contain and so far beyond our ability to put in a box like that, but that we would know that as your people, we are safe with you because you will keep us safe. By the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the mediation, by the work that he has done, we are safe to come into your presence because you have made it so. Your presence is the most intimidating place we could ever come because we know that we are unrighteous. We know that we are sinful and that we are broken. And yet you have made a way into your presence by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have been granted his righteousness, that we come before you not on our own merit, not of our own worth, not because of our own works, but based on the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you teach us what it means to fear you? Not be afraid of you, not be scared of you, but to wholly fear you and to live as your people and to follow you. 
And that when the world looks at our profession of faith, looks at the God that we claim to believe, that we wouldn't look like Jonah, claiming to believe in the God that created everything, the God that is above all and around all and through all and in all, while running from you. We pray that when we profess faith, people might look at our lives and go, their faith has changed them. They are living and pursuing and chasing after and obeying the voice of their God. That is a God worth serving. That is a God who is far greater and beyond anything that we know. Lord, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. We thank you for your word which has worked in our hearts, in our lives, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you continue to apply it and make it real in our lives this week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you'd hear our benediction from Ephesians 3. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.